Hello and welcome to the Becoming Adam podcast. I'm your host, Jay Johnson. As you may have guessed from the music, my topic in this episode isn't Genesis or Evolution. We're starting the new year with a new subject, Jesus the Anointed. I hope everyone noticed the website's full name is Becoming Adam, Becoming Christ. The first half of that equation describes how God used evolution to create humanity, but when we chose evil rather than good, we were alienated from it. Becoming Christ is the Lord's answer to our predicament. Jesus offers a second chance to everyone, a new birth into the life of the Spirit. We can choose to remain spiritually dead, or we can choose to follow Jesus and become like Him. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Intellectual certainty doesn't come first. The abiding, or living out, of Christ's word as a disciple comes first. And from that lived experience comes confidence in Jesus and the truth of his teaching. Follow, and you will know. The proof is in the pudding, not in reading the recipe. With that... I hope you enjoy this sneak preview of my forthcoming ebook, The Anointed. Living in a predominantly Christian culture, all of us, even those of us who don't identify as Christian, think we know who Jesus is. We grew up decorating Christmas trees, singing carols, and watching Charlie Brown specials. Many of us attended church as children. Others were dragged there as adults by well-meaning friends or relatives. People knock on our doors to witness to us, promise us on TV that Jesus will solve our financial problems, and accost us on the street with invitations to accept Jesus into our hearts. Our politicians vie for Jesus' endorsement, our athletes credit him with their victories, and, of course, we suffer the daily parade of social media posts purporting to inform us of Christ's opinion on every political issue of the day. We are so saturated with God talk and Jesus speak that it obscures our vision like a fog. Consider this my small contribution toward dissipating that fog. Christianity can't be understood apart from Jesus, but few of us seem inclined to dust off the Bible if we own one and discover him for ourselves. In any case, why should we? We already know the story. We've absorbed it by osmosis. Such vague, second-hand knowledge of Jesus is not confined to the atheist, the agnostic, the skeptic, or the seeker. It extends across vast swaths of those who say they're his followers. Exacerbating the problem is that when people do attempt to read the Gospels, they encounter numerous barriers. Should they make it past the uninviting Bible format, they still must grapple with a foreign culture 2,000 years removed from our own. My intent, then, is twofold to present the story of Jesus in a new context, and to remove barriers that prevent people from understanding that story. To that end, I've paraphrased the four gospel accounts into one narrative that sounds and feels like a modern biography, making it more accessible to present-day readers. To see Jesus afresh, we must enter his story and view him through the eyes of those who first encountered him. We must attempt to see as they saw and hear as they heard, We gain such access through the door of historical context, the political, economic, social, and cultural factors that influence the writing of the Gospels. When we read historical documents such as the Bible through the lens of our own time, 
The picture becomes distorted no matter how many times we've watched The Prince of Egypt and Ben-Hur. For example, nowadays we hear Christ and automatically associate it with our contemporary notions of Jesus, which may or may not be accurate. For that reason, I've exchanged the familiar Christ for the unfamiliar anointed, which is the English equivalent. The change forces us to pause and think. Christ was not originally a proper name, but a title with a meaning rooted in the Hebrew Scriptures, a title that kindled a host of expectations in its original Jewish audience. Israel was firmly in the grip of messianic fever in the first century. The range of popular beliefs about the Messiah ran the gamut, but they primarily centered on earthly and political hopes for a king from the line of David who would defeat Israel's enemies and rule the world. Jesus spent his entire ministry challenging the expectations, traditions, and prejudices of his first audience. If we read his story without questioning our own preconceived notions, we'll misunderstand his meaning as badly as his contemporaries who could not question theirs. All of us have experienced bumping into people we know at a store, a ball game, or a concert, yet we don't immediately recognize them and can't even recall their names, even though we know we know who it is. The reason almost always is because we've encountered them in an unfamiliar context. Simply transposing what's familiar into a different setting disrupts our established thought patterns and causes us to reconsider what we thought we already knew. My hope is that my listeners will consider Jesus from a fresh perspective, perhaps discovering in him a revelation of God that slices through the fog of our present culture like a knife, revealing one who is worthy to be loved with all the heart, with all the mind, with all the soul, and with all the strength. Chapter 1. Before the Beginning Although much has been written about what Jesus said and did to fulfill his mission, including what was handed down to us by people devoted to his message who saw it all for themselves, after careful investigation it seemed appropriate to arrange everything in logical order so that you who love God can know for certain that what you were taught is true. What follows is the account of the origins of Jesus the Anointed, the Son of David, the son of Abraham. In the beginning there was the Word. The Word was with God, and what God was, the Word was. Everything was created by Him to such an extent that nothing was made without Him. Life itself is in Him, shedding light upon all of humanity and continually shining in the darkness, which cannot swallow it. God sent John to be a witness of the light, to prepare everyone to believe. John himself was not the light, rather, he was sent to proclaim it. This light is the true light, Jesus, who sheds his light upon everyone born into the world. Although this light was in the world, and he made the world, the world didn't recognize him when he entered it. Even his own people turned away. Yet, anyone who welcomes him and believes him becomes a child of God. God's children aren't born of flesh and blood by human decision. They are born of God. So the Word, who is God, donned our flesh and became the tabernacle among us. We saw His glory, a glory that befitted the uniquely beloved, full of the Father's grace and truth. John testified of Him, This is whom I meant when I said, A man who comes after me outranks me, because he existed before me. 
Jesus shared the full measure of God's grace with us and with everyone else too. Moses gave the law, but Jesus the anointed brought something much greater, God's grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the uniquely beloved, himself God, has narrated him to us. Chapter 2. Good News. Thus begins the good news about Jesus the Anointed, the Son of God. Long ago, when Herod the Great was king of Judea, there lived a priest named Zechariah. He and his wife, Elizabeth, who also was from a priestly family, were good people who obeyed God's law, but they had grown old and remained childless. Zechariah was at work in the temple one day when he was chosen at random to burn incense at the altar. A crowd gathered outside to pray while he burned the incense inside the temple when suddenly an angel appeared to the right of the altar. Zechariah was gripped with fear, but the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will have a son and you will name him John. He will bring joy to your heart and to many others as well. He will be a great man in God's eyes. He will not drink any wine or liquor. Instead, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. Because of him, many of the children of Israel will turn back to God. He will have the power and spirit of Elijah to soften hard hearts, change stubborn minds, and prepare the people for the Lord. How do I know for sure this will happen? Zechariah asked. I'm old, and so is my wife. I am Gabriel, the angel answered. I stand before God. He sent me to speak to you and bring you this good news. Watch. You'll not be able to speak until my message comes true because you didn't believe what I told you. Meanwhile, the people praying outside wondered what could be keeping Zechariah. When he finally emerged, he had to signal with his hands and act out what had happened until eventually they concluded he must have seen some sort of vision. Although unable to speak, Zechariah remained at the temple until his term of service ended when he went home. Not long afterward, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant, as the angel had said, and she remained home for the next five months, praising and thanking God, saying, The Lord has remembered me in his kindness and given me a child, so no one will look down on me anymore. When Elizabeth was about six months pregnant, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, the northernmost part of Israel. Gabriel visited a virgin named Mary, who was engaged to marry a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, the king of Israel about a thousand years before this time. Rejoice, the angel said to Mary. The Lord is with you and gives you his grace. Mary was frightened and confused. What sort of greeting is this, she wondered. Don't be afraid, Mary, Gabriel said. You have found God's grace. Watch. You will become pregnant with a son and will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him his father David's throne. He will rule the people of Israel forever, and his kingdom will never end. How can this be possible, Mary asked. I'm a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will accomplish it by his power. The Most High will cast his shadow upon you, so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Your distant relative, Elizabeth, also has become pregnant with a son, despite her age. People called her barren, but now she is six months pregnant. With God, nothing is impossible. So be it, Mary said. I am the Lord's slave. Let it happen to me just as you've said. 
Hearing this reply, the angel left. Mary herself quickly departed for the hill country where Zechariah and Elizabeth lived. And when Mary entered their house and greeted Elizabeth, her baby kicked. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth exuberantly responded, God has blessed you among all women, just as he has blessed your child. But why should I have this great honor that the mother of my Lord should come to visit me? As soon as your voice reached my ears, the baby inside me leaped for joy. God has blessed you for believing the things he revealed to you. Mary composed a poem in reply. I praise the Lord with all my heart. My spirit is filled with joy by God, my Savior. He's looked down on me and granted me his grace, and from now on, every generation will call me blessed. The mighty God has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He has mercy on everyone who fears him in every generation. His arm is strong. He brushes away those whose heart is full of pride. He drags kings off their thrones and lifts up those who were oppressed. He fills the hungry with good things, but sends the rich away empty. He has helped Israel, his servant, by remembering them in his mercy, a promise given to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Before Mary returned home, Elizabeth gave birth to a son, and when her relatives and neighbors heard what a great thing God had done for her, they came to see the child and share her joy. On the eighth day after the birth, everyone gathered for the circumcision ceremony that Jewish law required. As the family prepared to name the child after his father, Zechariah, Elizabeth refused to go along with it. No, she insisted, he'll be called John. There's no one in the family by that name, they argued. They made signs to the baby's father, trying to discern what he wanted to name the child. He asked for a tablet, and to their amazement, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, Zechariah was able to speak, and he began to praise God. All the neighbors were struck with awe by what transpired. It quickly became the talk of the town, and word spread throughout the hill country. Everyone who heard about it wondered, what sort of child will this be? The Lord's hand was with John like this for all of his life. Then the Holy Spirit filled Zechariah, and he spoke this prophecy. I thank the Lord God of Israel for visiting and saving his people. By his power he has saved us through the family of his servant David, just as he promised in the words of his prophet spoken long, long ago. He said he would save us from our enemies and from everyone who hated us. He has shown us the mercy promised to our fathers and fulfilled his holy word, the promise he made to our father Abraham. He has delivered us from the power of our enemies so that we may serve him without fear, living good and holy lives in his eyes. You, my child, will be called the prophet of God. You will go ahead of the Lord to prepare the way for him, to teach his people about salvation through God's forgiveness. He gives us his tender mercy when the rising sun of heaven visits us to give us light in our darkness and fear of death and to guide us to his path that brings peace. Zechariah's son John grew and became strong and he lived in the desert until he began to preach and teach the people of Israel. Following her trip, Mary returned to Nazareth and it became known that she was pregnant. Joseph knew the child was not his and the law allowed him to take Mary before a judge and have her punished. But Joseph was a kind man who didn't want to expose Mary's shame to the community. Instead, he thought he might break their engagement quietly and send her away to have the baby. While Joseph was trying to decide what was best, the Lord sent an angel to him in a dream. Joseph, the angel said, 
Do not be concerned about taking Mary as your wife. The child in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will have a son, and you will call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means the Lord will save. These things happened in order to fulfill the words, Lord, to Isaiah the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The Hebrew Emmanuel means God with us. Startled, Joseph awoke, and he did what the Lord's angel had said. He accepted Mary as his betrothed, but they did not consummate their marriage until after Jesus was born. Chapter 3 The Anointed Child Toward the end of Mary's pregnancy, the ruler of the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus, decided to take a census. This census happened while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone had to return to their hometowns in order to register with the census, so Joseph left Nazareth in Galilee with Mary, who was still just his fiancée, and traveled to Bethlehem, where both he and his ancestor David had been born. There, Mary went into labor and gave birth to her firstborn, a son. Since the guest room was full, she wrapped the baby in strips of cloth and laid him in the feed trough of the stable, which was separated from the main room of the house by a half wall. Shepherds lived in the open country near Bethlehem, and although it was late, they remained awake to watch their sheep and protect them from wild animals. Without warning, an angel appeared, and a bright light shone all around them. They were terrified by the sight, but the angel said, Don't be afraid. Listen, I'm bringing you good news of joy for everyone. Today, a Savior has been born in Bethlehem. He is the anointed Lord. The sign you should look for is a baby wrapped in cloth sleeping in a feed trough. Suddenly a great number of angels appeared, praising God and singing, Give glory to God in heaven, and on earth peace among those who receive his favor. The angels disappeared, and the astonished shepherds turned to each other and exclaimed, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing the Lord has told us about. They rushed into town and found the baby with Mary and Joseph, and when they had seen everything with their own eyes, they couldn't keep it to themselves any longer. They told everyone they met about the angels, their message, and the baby in the stable. Everyone was amazed by the shepherd's tale. Mary herself often ruminated about what they said and its meaning. The shepherds eventually returned to their sheep, praising and giving thanks to God the entire way. All had happened just as they had been told. Eight days after the birth, Mary and Joseph took the child to be circumcised, and he was called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived. Since Nazareth was a three-day journey with a new mother and infant, and Mary would have to undergo her purification rites at the temple a few weeks later, Joseph decided to remain in Bethlehem with his relatives until the required time had passed. During the interval, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. They asked many people around the city, Where has the king of the Jews been born? We've studied his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. Word of this spread quickly, but no one was sure what they meant. The gossip made its way to King Herod, who was greatly bothered by it. He was the king. Who were these foreigners asking about? The anointed? Herod gathered the chief priests and scribes and asked them, Where will the anointed be born? In Bethlehem, they answered. The prophet wrote, But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Receiving his answer, Herod had the Magi tracked down and brought to him in secret. 
He questioned them closely, wanting to know when the star had appeared. Herod was careful to hide his reasons for speaking to them and tried to appear helpful by advising them to look for the child in Bethlehem. But then he laid his trap. Go there and look for the child, he said, and when you find him, come back and tell me where he is. I'd like to go and worship him too. The Magi departed, and when they saw that night that the star led in the direction of Bethlehem, they were filled with joy and excitement. Bethlehem was small and nearby, and they had little trouble finding the right house. Joseph let them inside, and when they saw Jesus with Mary, they fell to the floor and worshipped him. Then they opened their packs and brought out fine expensive gifts for Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Later that night, when the Magi had gone to sleep, God warned them in their dream not to return to Herod. They set out in the morning by another route, staying as far from Herod and Jerusalem as they could. Since Joseph and Mary were devout Jews, they followed the law of Moses carefully. It's written in the law, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So when the proper time came, they went to the temple to dedicate Jesus to the Lord and to make the sacrifice for Mary. Since they were poor and could not afford a lamb, the law allowed them to substitute two turtle doves or two young pigeons. In Jerusalem lived a man named Simeon. He was a good man, devoted to God, and had been waiting many years for the one who would bring healing to Israel. The Holy Spirit was with Simeon and had told him he would not die until he had seen the anointed. Brought by the Spirit to the temple, Simeon noticed Mary and Joseph. He came to them, took Jesus in his arms, and thanked God, saying, Lord, now I can die in peace, as you told me, because I have seen your salvation with my own eyes. You have given it to all people everywhere. He will be a light, revealing God to the world and shining brightly for your people Israel. Joseph and Mary stood by amazed while Simeon spoke. He gave them a blessing and said to Mary, Listen carefully. This child's destiny is to cause some to fall and others to rise. Yes, and because of him, you will experience great pain like a sword in your heart. He himself will serve as a sign. Many people will speak against him, and he will reveal what is in many hearts. Another prophet, Anna, also was in the temple that day. She was very old, about 84, and her husband had died after they'd been married just seven years. She'd never remarried, but spent her time in the temple serving God with prayers and fasts. When Anna heard Simeon, immediately she came over and gave thanks to the Lord. She spoke about this with everyone who was hoping for God's salvation. Not long after the Magi's departure, Joseph had a dream in which an angel again spoke to him. Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Stay there until I bring you word that it's safe because Herod wants to kill the child. Frightened, Joseph woke and immediately began making preparations. When everything was packed, he took Mary and the baby and set out for Egypt while it was still dark. They would remain there until Herod died, which fulfilled what the Lord told the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Although Herod kept waiting for the Magi to return, eventually he realized that they'd seen through his ruse and evaded him. Desperate and furious, Herod hatched a cruel plan. He would execute every baby boy who might be the anointed, the future king. To ensure that his plan would work, he killed every boy under two years old in the area around the village. This fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping in great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more.
Following Herod's death, the angel returned to Joseph in a dream and told him, Gather your family and things and return to Israel. Those who wanted to kill the child are now dead. Joseph did as he was told, but he was afraid to travel through Judea when he heard that Archelaus was now the king. Warned by God to steer clear, Joseph took a different route home to Nazareth, a place that everyone considered a laughingstock. This fulfilled the prophet's words that Jesus would be mocked, as are all who are called by the name Nazarene. In the end, Mary and Joseph had followed God's word in everything. After so many strange and remarkable events, the family had come back to their own land, Galilee, and their own city, Nazareth. Here, Jesus would grow and become strong in his spirit, filled with the wisdom and grace of God. Every year, Jesus' family would travel to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. When Jesus was 12 years old, they went to Jerusalem as usual, but after the week-long festival ended, the family set off for Nazareth, not knowing that Jesus wasn't with them. They assumed he was with some of their many friends and relatives who also made the trip. Stopping for the night, Joseph and Mary began looking for Jesus. Unable to find him anywhere, they realized he'd been left behind. They rushed back to Jerusalem, but the city was crowded, and they had no idea where Jesus could have gone. Three days after their initial departure, Joseph and Mary finally found Jesus in the temple, sitting in the midst of a group of rabbis, listening to their discussion and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him couldn't believe that such a young boy understood and asked such deep questions. His parents were amazed to find him there, and Mary said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I were worried to death looking for you. Why did you have to look for me, Jesus replied. Didn't you know I had to be doing my father's work? Mary didn't understand what he meant, but she didn't question it. Jesus was a good, obedient child. Later, though, she often remembered what had happened and considered its significance. The family returned safely to Nazareth, where Jesus grew in size and in wisdom, and everyone loved him, both people and God. Thanks for listening to the Becoming Adam podcast. Jay would like to thank the following sponsors for generously supporting this project. Sue Ellen Johnson, 